Welcome to Nero Knowledge. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Nero Knowledge. With a long hiatus, we are jumping back, thankfully, with a guest. Um, it is Michelle, as I say it, Eliason, but right. do the sweetest version. Eliason. See, there you go. So mm -hmm. I had to make sure she said it her way because that's the proper way. So for those Swedes that actually do listen to the show, I have somebody for you here today. Um, so Michelle, you are a PhD candidate or graduate at this point? Candidate. I actually candidate, just so. became a candidate. Yeah. Awesome. So she has research today, and I think this is a fantastic topic based on even this week's, uh, or I should say last week's course of events of um, the Chauvin case and all of the conversations that are going on with uh, policing in America. And obviously, um, I think that has rippled overseas and since seeing what has happened here in America and now kind of having people take a look at what's going on with policing in their own countries. And so a great topic of research that you've done, I'll let you address it in a minute. But before we do, how did you get into all this? Give us a little bit of background of, of who you are and how you decided to start doing uh, research and moving towards uh, uh, researching policing in and of itself. Sure, thank you so much for having me, first Definitely. of all. Um, so yeah, uh, I was uh, born and raised in Sweden. Uh, I moved here to the US to kind of pursue my graduate studies. Um, and I'm right now at University of Florida here in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, I got my bachelor's degree in criminology and sociology from Lund University. Um, so I tend to kind of explain myself as a hybrid between uh, a sociologist and a criminologist because I kind of do a little bit of both in my work. Um, my scholarly interest varies a little bit, but I would say that my major areas of interest are victims and victimization, criminal justice professionals, and restorative justice. Those are kind of the areas that I dabble in, I would say, as a new scholar. So I haven't dabbled, you know, a lot yet, but I'm still learning and trying. Um, in the feet wet, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so how did I get involved in this particular area of study, which is related to policing, is um, much came because I grew up with a dad who uh, was a police officer, actually. Um, so I really never had aspirations to become an academic or do research in, related to this. I just grew up knowing that I was very interested in anything related to the criminal justice systems. And a little bit later on, I think when I became a late teen, I was interested in victims. And I started volunteering with the local victim services in Sweden and kind of, that's kind of how I got into that um, interest. And then I enrolled in uh, our um, bachelor's program in Sweden where we have to choose our major straight away. So we kind of like choose a specific program. And I chose criminology and sociology just by fluke. Like I tried it and I was like, hey, my dad is a police officer. I'm interested in this, you know? <laughs> and I got in and, you know, as education is free in my country. So I thought, you know, hey, let's just try. So um, I got in, uh, I tried it and one semester turned into three. And then there I was with my bachelor's degree awesome. and I applied here. Yeah, so um, I got in here and then it just, I would say it came like natural to me because I think I just grew up in this like socialization of policing and, you know, seeing my dad and his coworkers. And I was always very interested by, you know, police culture and perceptions and things like that. So. So just to get a, a 
different perspective on it. How is the police system set up in Sweden? Because here in the U.S., we have our local municipal police departments for the city. And then sometimes there's then the county level, the state level, the federal level, and sometimes a little bit of everything in between hybrid wise. I know uh, for some European countries, there ends up being basically only two tiers uh, in a sense. There's the, the national and then maybe if you're big enough uh, county or local level in some form? How's that yeah. work in Sweden? Yeah, so the Swedish police have been through a lot of, I would say like reorganization recently, but we've always, always had one police. So we've always had one national police, no local police or state police or anything like that. It's always one national police. And then obviously we have a military, but it's not an active military in my country. So we only have one police. Um, that I think of as currently the police is one organization. However, it's directed into little by organizations that kind of handles different regions in Sweden. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how it's structured. Structured. Uh, technically, they could be any. I mean, anybody from the north can go and enact any kind of uh, warrant or arrest down in the southern part of the nation and it's all fair game at that point in a sense. Yeah, yeah, they could. However, I think due to um, it's kind of basically, you know, the economy and prices of things, they would <laughs> normally send a warrant to, you know, a, yeah, a yeah. police officer in the South and they would go and handle it. But it's one organization. A little easier. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. geographically, obviously, you can't, can't make that trip all the time, maybe, but. <laughs> yeah, Sweden yeah. is not as big as the U.S., but we are, you know, it, it takes a couple hours. From it takes, the it's a little travel, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so that so that's good. I mean, at a being nationalized, obviously, it's a lot easier than to implement certain programs. I would think, in terms of um, so a lot of what we talk about on the show, um, as you're aware, is evidence-based policing and, uh, and having some strategies involved as well in, in that realm. So I would suppose that it's easier for a country like Sweden than to basically ripple that out, as opposed to here in the states, where we have 50 states to deal with, plus however many counties and towns and then just your federal government. So very fractured. And uh, I guess that could be an interesting piece uh, to this puzzle where uh, we lie at this point in, in terms of American policing um, and maybe what is or isn't trained and what is or isn't passed down for research for the practitioner in of itself. So with that, why don't we jump into um, what you have done for research? So uh, what, what made you want to do this interesting uh, piece and see kind of like, a, I guess I would call it a dichotomy almost because you, you just have the two pieces of, of American police and Swedish police and your research being um, uh, qualitative in terms of asking American police and Swedish police, what makes a good police officer? I think, I think that's fantastic because uh, as I mentioned to you beforehand, that is a piece seemingly that is lost in this conversation, at least in this country, it seems to be at this point where what to you makes a good one, because to the public, we have plenty of information what makes a good police officer. So how did you get into this? Well, so this, this paper, this project kind of came out of my master's project, which was that I was in that project, I was looking at police officers perceptions of victims and victim legitimacy. However, once I went out and kind of write in my first interview, I just found my interest in being, 
I'm so interested to ask, you know, how these police officers kind of perceive themselves because I've always, you know, and as I said, my dad was a police officer and I always thought a lot about, you know, how he talked about himself and how he talked about his coworkers and kind of how, you know, the ideal officers and what you should do as a good officers and a bad officers and things like that. So I decided because I had the opportunity and go to interview uh, officers in Sweden, I was, I added a couple of questions because I was like, Hey, I just want to see, you know, what they respond. And I, I discovered during my conversation was with officers that they did have a really, I would say a really strong picture of what a good police officer is and what a bad police officer is. And mm-hmm. I, 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 do, I have to say, I wasn't surprised that they had strong values and opinions about that because I think, you know, most people who, talk to officers and talked about and talk about you know situations in the field or you know other cases a lot of police officers have opinion you know about the policing so i i thought that you know i would probably see a lot of interesting thoughts on how policing should be done and especially i was expecting more of opinions from older officers because i think with any you know professions when there is professionals who've been there for a long time or many years they have strong opinions about how you know you should perform your profession basically so yeah. i was kind of um prepared for that and you know i i found some good results uh, or interesting results i should say um yeah so then uh, as i finished up my collection uh, of data in sweden i had an internship actually in washington dc over the summer and i that was with the uh, local uh, attorney's office there um and I started interacting more with the officers working within that specific uh, little the investigators within that office. And I thought, hey, you know, I just came back from interviewing Swedish officers. I have this, you know, set of questions that I want to ask. And there were so many of them that I, you know, started to talk to. I was like, hey, I should interview them, too, because it would be a very interesting, you know, idea for a future paper to kind of compare these two. Because, you right. know, we are very different countries and we have very different policing strategies, structures, but also, you know, and I think we probably will get into this later, but, you know, our welfare system is very different. The societies are built differently. So I just thought it would be an interesting kind of uh, idea to uh, compare the two. And I have always been very interested in doing comparative work between Sweden and the U.S. because, you know, obviously there is a lot of researchers that come from Sweden, but I thought, especially in policing, it's kind of interesting to kind of see um, the attitudes and perceptions that both American and uh, Swedish officers have. Yeah, it's, uh, as you said, definitely a different <laughs> different way of dealing with your society, uh, especially um, not just in policing, but I mean, uh, you mentioned the welfare program. Uh, that definitely just echoes. Somebody hearing that already, I guarantee you, has already painted a picture of what that means here in this country. And sometimes it's a very negative outlook um, on, on what that is because people like to manipulate a system, but I don't know that they understand that that happens everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have to, you know, put in here that Sweden is not an ideal country. Sweden has issues of their own. And, you know, you know, I think irrelevantly of your political, you know, values or how you think a society is built, you know, there is still a fact that both countries in all countries, most countries have a police force, right, that has to function within the society that they exist, right? So, irrelevantly or independently of, you know, the, the content of that society, you know, we're going to see, you know, differences and similarities between how officers work in various yeah. countries. Right. Yeah. 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 Cause that's really what people boil down to is we all have 
basically the sound, same baseline, same foundation. Um, it's just what do we play into more our fears or our hopes in a sense at that point um, and, and who I guess runs the narrative sometimes will we'll speak to that unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So um, we can get into a whole different set of things. Well, <laughs> let's, let's dive into your work a little bit here. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so as I read through, I thought it was a great little piece. You really did uh, um, kind of define a, a few major uh, uh, themes and, and characteristics as you went through this and concepts. What was, uh, and as you start this off, you, you mentioned that you had three aspects that the research kind of boiled down to when you got into this. So what, what were those? And, and if you can kind of give them a definition with it too. Sure. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, we can say the overarching findings in my paper kind of allude to that. There are kind of three aspects of how officers kind of describe good and bad policing. And these are three aspects that we can see in both American officers and Swedish officers. And I have to say that, you know, the findings that I'm discussing right now, and I am discussing in this, you know, talk, you know, I can only, I can only speak for the sample I have or the study I have. I cannot speak for, you know, every country in Scandinavia or even all the officers in Sweden, you know, I can only base this on the interviews I have, but I did, you know, perform interviews with uh, 27 Swedish officers and 25 American officers and for qualitative research and for, you know, interviews, that's a pretty good, pretty good size sample. But basically what I found is that the three major aspects that kind of influence how they talk about good and bad officers are how they manage their first encounter with civilians. So that's the first one. The second one is how well they manage their and other people's emotions and their professionalism. So those are the three. Um, And overall, you can say that American and Swedish officers kind of describe similar characteristics in good and bad policing, which both kind of reflects attributes that are associated with de-escalation tactics. And let me explain that, you situate that a little bit, because when I went into this, I was kind of interested in seeing, you know, because I've done a lot of ride-alongs with police officers here in the U.S. about, I think, 150 or 200 hours up in D.C., because I kind of wanted to see how police officers, you know, work here. Yeah. Um, and, and also, you know, because every other experience I had prior to coming here to the U.S. was from news media and, you know, social media. So I didn't really, you know, know specifically how the actual work was conducted, right? So what I knew before going into ride-alongs was that I had this picture that officers were very violent, right? And American kind of general picture that you know Swedish officers are not and what I based that upon was that there tend to be different tactics in policing and in the I would say primarily in Sweden but I think this is you know true for most of the Scandinavian countries is that that strategy and tactics that you use in that type of policing is that you want to de-escalate a situation or an encounter you have in the field. And that's normally done through talking. That's your primary tool of de-escalating situations, right? Here in the US, the experience I had before going on ride-alongs and also doing these interviews is that the policing here in the US is not necessarily directed towards de-escalating using talk. It's rather to kind of either neutralize the situation or a lot of officers tend to de-escalate situations. And we have to, you know, 
kind of look at the context of, you know, the American society and the Swedish society, because there is a very big difference in that here in the US, you are allowed to carry a gun as a civilian. In my country, you're not. So right off the bat there, you know, there is a very big difference between the two countries, right? So mm. this is kind of, you know, how I wanted to kind of examine this, this situation or this, um, the differences between the countries a little bit better because I asked myself, you know, hey, I wonder if American police officers and Swedish officers describe themselves differently or the same, especially since looking at, you know, the overarching ideas and strategies to policing are very different, right? One is more, a little bit more confrontational and not necessarily focusing on de-escalating uh, with talk, which is the, you know, American one, but in Sweden, it's more focusing on de-escalation with talk, right? So I was interested to see if, you know, hey, is there, you know, a difference between how they perceive themselves and good policing or, you know, is it, are there none? So that's kind of, you know, just to situate, that was a long explanation, but that's kind of to situate, you know, the overall um, kind of thoughts behind it. Yeah, no, it definitely makes sense because it, it paints a better picture, I think, for the people listening, especially here in America, because that might not be something that we perceive since it's part of our culture is that that fact that anybody who is a, a citizen, uh, a civilian of the country can potentially be carrying a firearm, regardless of uh, um, <laughs> some of the other conversations with that yeah. one. But it, yeah. it's, a, it's a truth. And it's basically in a sense that who technically holds um, the power. So it's an interesting then from here, because while that is almost balanced, because anybody mm -hmm. can have one as well as your police, Mm -hmm. What does it say sometimes to then the, the Swedish one in a sense where you have to probably be careful of maybe what you say to the wrong person in Sweden mm -hmm. who has a similar counterpart here in the States who's very much a confrontational officer, authoritarian, uh, you know, wants to, is really there for the status of carrying a badge and what it, the power it holds, right? Mm -hmm. Which we know is rare. It's rare and unfortunate and really the those who kind of bring this into the limelight. But uh, so it's just an interesting conversation that really didn't exist here, I don't think, in, in terms of what do you, especially what are you going to be dealing with as an officer? Maybe there's a lack uh, um, or a lesser fear in Sweden because somebody is not potentially carrying a weapon. Whereas here, you pull over a car and as you had in your ride-alongs, you don't know what you're coming up against at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there's a lot of policing scholarship out there that works on what we call the danger imperative, which is mm. basically, you know, how police officers see danger and how that danger kind of affects, you know, the way that they protect other officers, but also how they conduct their work, right? And yeah. I think in Sweden, the danger imperative does exist, but I think it exists very differently because civilians do not have access to guns in the same you know to the same extent as here in the U.S. and I think you know especially looking at how this impact the way officers perceive themselves but also how the profession should be ideally in their head I think right. it's very interesting. Yeah yeah lots of lots of different tangents to go off of in yeah. your work which is fantastic because it just means there's more work for you to do. <laughs> yes, there is. There All is the coming years for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with it, what, was there a piece though of those three aspects that you, you felt weighed more with the people you spoke with? Uh, one kind of carried more than another necessarily? So maybe had more the, value, I guess is really what I'm looking for. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, for I, 
So it's kind of hard to answer that question in one sense because I saw these themes, three themes in both American and Swedish officers. But what I could say is that I was surprised that both how police officers should conduct themselves in relation to others was mentioned as much as how police officers should conduct themselves in relation to civilians, right? Because I mm. think when we think about police officers, although we know there is this kind of, you know, thin blue line or brotherhood we talk a lot about here, uh, which exists, I think, in many countries, you know, I was surprised that that was mentioned as much as it was um, because I thought maybe this is my little like girl inside I thought that it was going to be more focused towards like how police officers interact with civilians because that's kind of how I view them in my personal opinion as you know what's important in their job right that's you know how they interact with civilians right because that's what they do a lot you know uh, a lot during their um work hours so I thought that was gonna you know be more important so I was kind of surprised to see how much you know, a lot of officers talked about, you know, how you should be professional, how you should, you know, do your work, you shouldn't be lazy, like that kind of things. I, I was yeah. surprised about that. Yeah. It'd be interesting to, to um, figure out what they would consider lazy, because as you spoke earlier to, um, you know, you, you had to speak and you kind of knew what to expect from those, those veterans, right, uh, of policing and some of the information that they might share with you um, here in this country. I know that there's a conversation towards, uh, see, there's the internet, internet connections unstable. Can you hear me still? My good. No, I can hear you right okay. now. I can hear you. I missed Ugh. your previous part of the question. Sorry. Nope. That's all right. It, I saw it pop up and I'm like, I told her that might happen. Uh, <laughs> so for all of you who aren't aware, my internet connection was unstable. So she didn't hear my question, which is fine. Cause I wasn't done with it. <laughs> it was a little long. No, you mentioned earlier, um, that speaking with veterans, you, you, kind of knew what you might expect from the answers that they were going to give. And here in this country, um, from what I've seen, I think that's a piece that holds us back in terms of um, some of the differences that I've spoken about on the show before, where, you know, dealing with people, the de-escalation, the, the need to be community oriented again, um, it is really some of the, the breakdown because of this us versus them that gets painted not only in the media, but that uh, I'm sure as police have worked, obviously it had to come from somewhere. We kind of broke that, but having uh, this kind of experience versus education, uh, experience versus knowledge of what's actually working, right? The research that actually works. So it is interesting that some of your answers did come from that, that interaction with civilians, but nobody seems to be putting the strategies forward in order to get that done. Yeah, a different theory yeah. on why that is, but that's that's besides the point. <laughs> yeah, no, I you know I definitely and I think just to I don't want to like pump myself up here, but I have done other <laughs> research also, and that's actually my first paper that got published that actually talks about how officers kind of perceive knowledge and a lot of officers. I would say they separate theoretical knowledge from occupational experiential knowledge. And I think this is a very, you know, what, what you're talking about here is that, yeah. you know, you have a lot of new officers coming into the field, just being through, you know, the training and they might have another, you know, perception of things compared to officers who've been in the field for like, you know, 20, 30 years. And there's one other major thing I have to um, 
disclose in relation to differences between Swedish police and American police, which is the training. So mm. in Sweden, the academy is, I think, about two and a half years long, um, and it's wow. more towards a college degree. So, um, so, so you have, you know, your basic college classes, but it's in the police academy, but, it, you know, you do social science, psychology, you know, all of these types of things, law. Um, and then you have your training in the field, which is normally about six months long. So it's very different compared to how it is here in the US. So just to like situate kind of how um, how different it is. And that's something we need to take into consideration too when comparing the two, obviously. That's pretty good. That's um, because technically I, I would say about six months long for the most part, four to, four to six months, depending on where you are here for the training um, to be a police officer. So, so similar, it's not fully on the job training. Because again, with so much fracturing, you're mm -hmm. going to have, uh, you know, places that do things a little bit differently, depending on what their goals probably are, their, their mission in a sense. Um, but that two, that technically that extra two years, that's, that would be um, ideal. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think. Have you know, that understanding, right? Yeah, no, I think, yeah. you know, in Sweden, we have kind of, you know, um, there has been an approach to kind of make the training more academic more theoretical uh, which you know a lot of police officers i've been speaking to are some of them are very pro to that and some of them are very, very negative towards that so i think you know obviously the discussion in sweden is very i don't it's, it's similar to mm. what it is here in the u.s but it's different because our training is longer so yeah it probably takes a while to get somebody where they need to be at that point mm -hmm. yeah whereas here sometimes it's you're down so many people you need to get them in and trained as fast as you can to get them out on the street to help you out. Um, yeah, and you also have to, you know, another thing related to that just quickly is that, you know, the, the benefits that comes with the job here in the US, like a lot of people I have heard, you know, say that they are interested in being police officers because it's, you know, a job that brings benefits and is secure, right? So in my country, mm -hmm. you know, we have a different welfare system. There is stability, you know, healthcare education is free. So, a lot of officers in my country are not necessarily seeking out to be officers just because there are benefits. So I think that's another thing that, you know, it might impact, you know, the different types of people who decides to become officers. That's beyond the scope of my research, but I think yeah. that's important too. Yeah. Well, I think in a sense, it speaks to really the mission at that point, right? What, what is it you want to do? Um, and what is it that that department, that agency, that business, that organization, whomever it might be that you're working for, does it align with what it is you want to do and have a passion for it? Yeah, right. yeah that's right. interesting. So with your research, mm -hmm. um, is there any piece in the sense that speaks to uh, the officers and um, some, of the, some of the public expectations? So obviously, you know, some of these aspects are already relating to um, they're understanding that the, the police is understanding that they need to have a better rapport with their citizens. Was there anything kind of specific that drove that uh, in terms of interaction? Because it's different for an officer to be proactive, you know, mm -hmm. see a bunch of kids playing basketball, street hockey, whatever it might be, and, mm -hmm. and go out and grab a stick and play versus, um, you know, basically have to do the negative aspect of writing them a ticket or arresting them. So there's there's definitely a long range of of interaction that takes place from the positive to the negative. Yeah. So 
I did not specifically have any, you know, I didn't do any survey research or anything related to the public's opinion about police, but I did ask my officers kind of, how do you think society perceive you and that your, you know, you know, your occupation? And I would say the number one answer I got from Swedish officers was that it depends on who you ask. It depends mm. on if, if you're asking, you know, a person who has, you know, a heavy criminal history or, you know, you ask a person who perhaps has a problem with substance abuse or if you're asked, you know, uh, a person that has a job or, you know, it, it depends on totally what type of person that you ask. So that was kind of, so yeah, so I would, I would say that was the major default answer to most of the officers in Sweden. Here in the U.S. it was a very different thing. Uh, almost all of my officers when I you know asked them what do you think what society thinks of you and your role like and kind of this ties into kind of the biggest challenges that I would perceive the officers here in the U.S. face is that a lot of officers perceive that is us versus them and that they are not liked and mm-hmm. that there is no support for officers and I think you know we can see that a lot with the, you know, social movements right now with, you know, Blue Lives Matters and things like that, that there is this strong perception among police that they're not a part of society. They are a separate group that are being perceived as, you know, people who do bad things only. And I think this was a very different thing, although my research was conducted 2018. So it was prior to COVID, but still, you know, there had been a lot of events here in the U.S. that impacted, you know, perception of police. I, I could definitely see that there was a big difference in how, you know, police officers describe their, you know, perceptions of or, or society's perceptions of them. So yeah. um, I think, you know, I th- there has been instances in Sweden where there has been behaviors that the police have exhibited that has been put under scrutiny through social media. However, there has been nothing even close to what's going on right here in the U.S. right now. So obviously, you know, we have to take into consideration the the very long history of, you know, racism, but also, you know, brutality and use of force. That's something we have to take into consideration when we talk about police in the U.S. versus police in Sweden, because the police history in both countries looks very different. And also, you know, the how society is built and how it works and, you know, how different populations within each society work. It is very different. And, you know, although Swedish and American police both uh, have behaviors that, you know, kind of perpetuates overuse of force at times, mm. there is very different ways of talking about it. And I think, you know, here in the U.S., there is way more openness to talk about police misconduct, police misconduct, sorry, and then, you know, there is in in Sweden. And I don't think it's because it doesn't exist in Sweden, because it does. But here in the US in recent years, it has become way more, you know, this is something we have to talk about. Police officers cannot act in any way they want to. There has to be, you know, repercussions, there has to be accountability, all these things that are, you know, way more often talked about here in the US than it is in Sweden right now. Yeah. That's interesting that it's not it's seemingly such a, a, a country that's very much involved in a sense in community and in providing for their citizens, such as Sweden. And the fact that there's not a conversation there is intriguing. I, I wouldn't have been aware of that here. Obviously, it's because our, our press is so um, quick, especially with social media. And I think 
the term cancel culture gets thrown around. And mm -hmm. so somebody sees basically one point of a video to a certain point, and that's all they see. So that is the immediate judgment point for the, the, the public jury, in a sense, to say what is right and what is wrong without expanding upon it and seeing it further for what it might be. Yeah. Um, and obviously, as I mentioned beforehand, I think this has been a, a problem um, going on. So before we started recording, I, I brought up Rodney King in the 90s, where it's been something that has been kind of in the limelight for almost 30 years. And just now, finally, it seems to be a topic that is, is just boiled over enough to be addressed. Um, and, and unfortunately, everybody is aware of our dirty laundry at this point, the American dirty laundry of, of the, you know, policing and kind of what happens. Um, but these incidents, uh, they're completely unfortunate, but the question is, do we, is it, is it a problem with us dealing with our public that us versus them, like you mentioned, is exactly one of the problems. It's not being a part of the community. It's perceiving yourself as a, as a separate piece of the community or an outcast even at that point, I, I think that might skew um, our ability to integrate back into and be a part of our communities, um, especially again, all the fracturing that takes place between municipality, county, state level, um, and the inability at that point, because you're chasing your tail, so to speak, job to job, the call to call, you don't have the time to take a step, go to the school and hang out with the kids or, uh, as I mentioned, you know, see them on the, the street playing a game and, and join in and just say, hey, and show them that you're a human too, to deal with. So yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I agree. I think, you know, it's very, there are so many, and obviously it's beyond, you know, this conversation, because it's a very big conversation to have <laughs> about you know, police violence, police brutality. But, you know, I think it's very important, you know, also to listeners to know, you know, to kind of know how many levels there are to this is that yes we can talk about it in relation to individual level of officers you know i mm. i think you know most of us have heard of the bad apple kind yeah. of um, argument here but we have to remember and i you know this is something that has been pressed a lot in my courses i've taken and the stuff i've read is that you know we also have to look at the systematical treatment mistreatment but also the way that you know behavior is perpetuated within the police and the law enforcement overall here in the US and also in other countries, you know, because I think it's, it's, it's very easy to talk about, you know, violence or conduct in relation to a specific incident, but, and yes, there are some, you know, there are decisions you make in a specific situation that, you know, can kind of determine how that situation, the outcome of that situation. But we have to also remember is that these officers are socialized in a group of other officers and they're trained in the academy in a specific way. They live in, you know, a specific society with, you know, they partake in looking at certain types of media. So we have to, you know, remember that this is what colors not only the officers and the way that they act in a specific situation, but also what kind of biases or perceptions they have within and what they have you know been learning throughout their academy but also mm -hmm. as a part of working as officers so that's really i think you know it, it's important yeah that psychology of the the social circle in a sense yeah yeah and also yeah yeah <laughs> yeah as you said so <laughs> yeah <laughs> so much we could go right yeah so <laughs> um so let's go down to you so to talk about some of the results there was the mm -hmm. the three themes in a sense that you have that came to fruition. What, 
what were those as you so um overall i would say i think you know it would be good here just to talk about kind of the similarities and mm -hmm. uh, between how officers and uh, swedish and american officers look at themselves but i would say that Overall, the study find, founds that um, American and Swedish police officers have similar perceptions about how good and bad policing is supposed to be. Um, first of all, a lot of officers, both in America and in Sweden, say that a good officer or good policing are individuals who comes with desires to help people and being unbiased when providing help to individuals, right? So this is something that officers say when I ask them, for example, can you describe what a good police officer is? They would respond by saying, yeah, well, you want to help others. That's something, you know, a good police officer should want to, but they should also want to treat everyone equally and they should want to be unbiased. So that's mm -hmm. kind of one of the first things. Um, secondly, I would say that another thing that good officers do, according to officers in both countries, is that they distance themselves from, from their pro profession. However, they still need to show emotions. So whilst being distanced, a lot of the officers are saying is that, you know, you can't, for example, handle conflicts by being aggressive, right? So they say that in order for that not to happen, you have to distance yourself and not take things personally, for example, or right. get stressed or let a situation get to you, right? However, you still need to be in touch with your emotions enough to be, for, for example, uh, have empathy for the victims you meet or for the people you meet, right? So that was an interesting kind of I don't want to say dichotomy, but it, it's, it's kind of a, an interesting thing that's also I'm I would imagine would be very hard for officers is that you have to be, you know, not personally, you know, attached to something and you have to like detach yourself from emotion and kind of manage your emotions in one sense. But in the other sense, you also have to be in touch with your emotions, right? So I think that description of, you know, a good officer, but also in one way a bad officer kind of allude to that there is a lot of, you have to have a lot of control over your emotions when working as a police officer. And I yeah. think, you know, going into a profession like that, you know, and being a human being, that must be really difficult. And just in my personal opinion, when I think of that, that must be really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so thirdly, good officers are proactive and they back up other police officers in their unit. Uh, they do their job effectively and they don't display laziness. So this is kind of what I talked about before that I was surprised about, you know, although I know that this is very important to officers in general, I did not think that this would come up as, you know, a point that they would describe like a good officers, but it was. And I think it's important to kind of understand the overall narrative of how, you know, important, um, you know, they collegial relationships are right yeah. within the organization and also here they they said that bad officers are you know officers who misuse their authoritative position and misuse the power that they they think they have because of the uniform and the badge to promote themselves and put other officers or other individuals down so that was kind of also very interesting to hear uh because a lot of i think you know a lot of Depends, obviously, what country you talk about, but I think, you know, especially in countries where police officers are kind of viewed as, you know, a legitimate profession, they view that there is a certain status and power that comes with the batch, right? Yeah. So I feel like a lot of officers said that, you know, officers who misuse this power that you're giving 
by the state to basically enforce violence, but also authority, those are bad officers, which is kind of gives me hope for the future a little bit, I hope, but you know, perceptions have to be hopefully connected to behavior, which is kind of another difficult thing to, you know, perceive or discuss, but um, yeah. yeah, that was interesting. Well, I think that along that part, um, what at least the American public doesn't doesn't get to see or, or may not see enough of is an officer speaking out against that, right? And the understanding that that's there. And so some of those, those few bad apples in the sense that are there and it being seen, you know, um, I had a professor for criminal justice and, and one of the best things he, he kind of laid out for me years ago was he asked the question, what is law? And, you know, we tried to give some of these textbook definitions and really he, he kind of looked at us all and he's like, really, law is the minimum standard by which to live, right? Mm -hmm. And so some of these rules and regulations that they have there, it, it, technically it's really easy to just live in a society because these laws for the most part are pretty darn simple. Um, and so within that culture, you would figure that it would be the same thing just to to get by, but when somebody breaks that, your job as an officer is supposed to, you know, enforce something at that point. And you would figure the same thing internally would be the case. But here in this in this country, outside of conspiracy theories and everything else people do, I don't think they see that person enough who comes out and says something against what has been done to kind of hold that more higher moral standard to kind of root out I think some of what that you just mentioned is being a bad officer. Um, those people who take that power for granted at that point. So um, it'd be interesting. I don't know if that will be something that we see more of as this change takes place. I mean, especially with uh, the Derek Chauvin trial that just happened and what's, what's going to be some of this change, especially with the fact that this research you have started on is, what is a good versus a bad cop from police themselves? So the fact that some of these are the same as what the public would perceive is interesting. Will it be something that they uphold and, and, and go through and, and stay with, stick with to make sure that everybody's held the, the, in the same light in a sense? Um, so it'd be interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, and definitely I agree. I think, you know, what's kind of, I don't want to say the limitations, but it, it you know, it is a limitation, obviously, of the paper in, in the sense is that, you know, I'm not, I can't predict behavior, obviously. Right. And I think, you know, it's important to note that, you know, in this paper, I'm only talking about how officers perceive, you know, the ideal officer. And, you know, I think we, there, there has to be a conversation, obviously, about how perception leads to behavior, right? Because mm -hmm. the truth is that there is a lot of misconduct, there is a lot of systematical, you know, brutality towards, you know, non-whites out there here in the US and other countries. And, you know, probably some of the officers I've met have done, you know, have had some sort of misconduct or done, you know, have decision made decisions that, you know, are not good quote unquote or you know that kind of perpetuates violence but still they have these you know perceptions of what an ideal officer should be right so right. there i think there is a lot here to unravel and you know kind of continue to study on and talk about but you know i think 
it's still interesting here. And I would say that that's like my major takeaway from the paper here is that although having different types of schooling, like educational wise, but also different types of schooling in terms of tactics, strategies, and also different cultures, both groups of police officers still had similar ways of describing what a good officer is. Yes, there were some minor differences, mm. but, you know, for example, the American officers here did not describe, you know, a good officers as, you know, a military soldier who is, who is uh, harassing everyone. Like, that's not how they describe the ideal yeah. officers. So we still have to remember that, you know, there is a certain perception of kind of what a decent police officer should be. And, However, you know, when we get into the field and we see that this behavior is not conducted, there is, you know, what makes a police officer who have a clear idea of what a good officer is not act that way in the field. That's kind of where we need to, you know, dig in our heels and kind of really understand what is going on. Yeah. Yeah. So with this, what is the, is there a future hope for the study for you? Is there, there more that you see that can be done just taking this as a foundation and running with it outside of all the tangents we could have gone off on at this point? <laughs> well, so I hope to, I'm in the process of trying to publish the paper. So obviously I hope it, you know, there is some editor out there who would love to have this paper in their journal, but you yes. know, I think overall, um, a lot of my research is based on perceptions um, that people have of, you know, you know um, victims or whatever, their own occupational uh, identity. And I think, I hope to understand more about how, as I said before, the link between, you know, having a good perception of a good behavior or having a perception of a bad behavior, how that then can transform to an individual acting in a completely different way in the field, right? Mm. But then, you know, going back to when that situation is not occurring anymore and talk to the police officer again and say like, hey, you have this perception of what a good officer is in this situation, you did not, you know, act in that way at all. Can you please tell me more of the steps of how, you know, your behavior here evolved to this outcome? Like, I think that going a bit more in depth talking about that, but then also I would hope one of my major things is that I hope, you know, talk more about the systematical conduct or the, you know, the problems of the organization, because, yeah. you know, the behavior is organization, like it's an organizational level. And I think that's something that really needs to be further developed because just by changing, you know, one or two officers or, you know, the officers who have displayed um, violent behavior in the field, like you, you can't change an organization based on that. You have to start, from my opinion, sure, you can start from the bottom up, but you also have to do top-down approach. Like you yeah. have to, you have to address it in both ends. And, you know, I don't have a, you know, definitive answer how we should reform or how we should abolish the American police. Like, I don't have that, but, you know, I do think that we can look at various countries and see how they, you know, how, how their police officer work and function. And I think, you know, we can take parts of that and try it here in America. I think, you know, there is a way forward, but there has to be a lot of, there has to be a lot of thought put into how the future of policing in whatever form it comes are going to function and the bureaucracy that is attached to it. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I think America tends to do best is just take things from everywhere and just put it together. Right? 
Well, you know, I think it's, you know, the history of policing kind of also, you know, it's yeah. kind of it's development, you know, it's it's right. how we how we develop policing and kind of how we try new things. And I think that's very good, because if you can have some type of empirical evidence or, you know, some practical uh, evidence for how something works, it's more I don't want to say easier, but it's a different process to implement it compared to having something that you have not tried before and implementing it. I mean, that's, you know, that's very different. But, you know, we have to we have to talk to police officers and we have to understand what they think and how they think of change and how, you know, they if we ask them, what do you think is the best way to change the police? We have to listen to trying to understand how they are schooled, how they're socialized to Mm -hmm. kind of come up with new ways for policing here in the U.S. Yeah. I like the attack of that both ends approach you talk about there. That's really going to be the, probably the, the best and probably the quickest way to make a lot of those changes, especially in this country where, um, as I mentioned to you earlier, was we don't really run on, unfortunately, evidence-based. It's more like, well, we used to do it this way and it seemed to work, so let's just keep doing it. I'm like, that's not... I think we've pretty well proven we're not doing a good job anymore at this point, so might want to reassess, but... Um, so as we wrap up, mm-hmm. what, uh, what do you have as a call to action for the listeners here? So this is, this is a hard question because obviously, right? I mean, it, it depends. <laughs> I mean, it depends on who your listener, who, who, the, who the listener is. But right. I would say for students out there who possibly are listening to this, um, I would say that continue to educate yourself and, you know, just continue to read more about, you know, the structure of the policing, read more about the history of policing, just to understand kind of, you know, what and what context officers operate in, because I think that provides a lot of knowledge into, you know, understanding why certain things happen. I also would say to other students who are, you know, are interested in, you know, things related to this is go on ride-alongs, mm-hmm. try to see how police officer, how, how the actual work is conducted in the field, because, you know, a lot of people study, and this is true for, you know, various um, types of academics, and I don't want to, you know, say that quantitative studies are not good because they are, but I do think if you're a new scholar who wants to understand a certain topic or, you know, a specific profession, I do think it's good to spend time in the field just to kind of get the sense of what it is that you're studying, right? So for non-academics for who are just listening because they're interested in the topic, I would just say continue to be a part of the of the debate that's going on right now, because I think the most dangerous thing that can happen right now is that the discussion just go goes quiet. Yeah. That's not, you know, we that cannot happen right now. We're in the middle of something I think historical in the sense that I think that this will have a outcome that will be definitely impacting the way policing, whatever form it will be, will be conducted in the future. And I think, you know, being a part of that historical change and shift but also the discussions is something that you know every individual should try to like try to be part of i think because it's kind of you know as civilians we're all probably in our life going to interact in some capacity with police sooner or later and you know we all irrelevantly of color of our skin or age or gender we should all you know have we should all be treated with respect from the police and we should be able to expect that from the police and right now we cannot expect that from the police and that's mm. you know that that's a failure in the police end that you know i think that last one was a great one don't just let it go be a part of that conversation because you too are affected by it in some form yeah that's amazing 
Michelle, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate your, your time in this research. And I look forward to seeing what you got for us in the future. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Another great episode of Nero Knowledge. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And remember to share, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your favorite service. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at nick at neroca.com. It is nick at neroca.com.